The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 60 is, what's the best form of government? And we read The Politics by Aristotle from around 350 BC. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer speaking to you from the independent city-state of Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin wishing he lived in an oligarchy instead of a democracy in Austin, Texas. Nah. And this is Wes Allen by Nature Political in Boston, Massachusetts. This is uh, Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. I really should have my slave perform this duty for me and be record these podcasts <laughs> for me. Ah, uh, yes, we're so dependent on our slaves. I thought you were by nature a slave. Aren't some people that? Yes, but how is it epistemically verifiable? You got to look into my soul and figure out that I am one who by nature needs to be ruled, which I think is what my girlfriend might tell you. <laughs> you know, I didn't tell the folks what parts of this book we were reading. We really just tried to cover a lot of it just to get a representative sample, but a lot of it is very boring and repetitious. So the parts we focused on were book one, chapters one and two, book three, book four, chapters one through three, book five, chapters one and two. Book 6, Chapters 1 through 6, and Book 7, Chapters 1 through 3, and 13 through 15. I did get bored, I have to admit. Even with that? Yeah, and the later stuff. And then I read, reading about the politics is great. You know, and I feel guilty because I feel like I'm moving too quickly through it and I'm not thinking through everything as carefully as I should be. I try to do that with Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2, the idea of the state being natural and all that, but I didn't have time to do it with everything. I'm going to unapologetically say that Aristotle is one of the few philosophers that I don't mind letting somebody else figure out. I would almost rather read a summary than read Aristotle himself. And it's not that it's tremendously complicated language like Kant or anything like that. It's just freaking hard to read. It's hard to piece everything together sometimes. And then sometimes you just sort of zone out. It's like the catalog of ships. It's a combination of like Homer and Kant. And I mean, just like... Sometimes you're like, what the hell is going on right now? Yeah, if you really spend some time on a paragraph where it might seem like there are some disjointed, loosely related sentences, let's say, you actually take time to figure out. You realize, oh, he's making a very tight argument here, and he's actually quite economical. And it's also nice to for me to go to some secondary literature and be reminded of some things, kind of be sensitized, and then go back to the text and be more sensitive to what's going on. But it is easy to go into zone-out mode or to get bored. I think the politics is a good example of the way in which boring is a perfectly fine word, is he's just so analytical. He spends a lot of time breaking things down into pieces and parts and almost describing it. And if you want to get a, even more of a taste of that kind of thing, just go read some of his biological works. 
You bring up a good point, Dylan. It's not so much the fact that he's analytical that makes it tough to stay focused. It's that he's analytical about things that are very specific to his time and place. So as soon as you're like, okay, he's going to go on like an in-depth analysis of slavery. As soon as I'm kind of like tuned out to like, I don't have that as part of my cultural heritage, even the kind of slavery he's talking about is a particular brand of it. Then I get tuned out or, you know, if I don't know about some of the city states that he's analyzing in the politics and I'm like, okay, make the point, move on. That's the part that's difficult. It's a little bit like reading original pieces of research sometimes. I got interested in this new research about the genetic history of dogs. And when I went to go read the papers, I was reminded of the way in which there's a kind of exhaustive cataloging of things and going through different possibilities and lots of very particular analyses. And I really was just interested in the big picture. <laughs> and so I wasn't in a position where I wanted to evaluate that information. I wanted to just see what their conclusions were and just get a sense of what that was. So there's a way in which you sort of want the review article and the list of the greatest hits out of the book, unless you are really going to try to do some kind of analysis of it. One thing also is that Aristotle was very empirically minded, which is not something that people always realize. And in this case, he had his students go out and collect information about different constitutions for 158 different cities. And, uh, we only have one of those today, the Constitution of Athens, but uh, part of his work here reflects a systematic analysis of that data from 158 different types of political organizations. I think that if you're coming to Aristotle for the very, very first time, I think that the selections that we have are pretty reasonable for the politics, and I encourage anybody to just jump in. But if you really just get dismayed, there are other books by Aristotle to read that are a little easier going than the politics if it's your first time reading it. It takes a little exercise to get used to it. Yeah, related to this, I listened to somebody who made a podcast version of speeches that he had done on friendship. And it's just a little short thing of there are three kinds of friendship. And it was nice. <laughs> there was none of this exhaustive stuff. It was short. But he is interested in taxonomy. He did say the three different kinds. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. He loves taxonomy. He did invent the categories, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. I used a different uh, approach for this one. I mean, I know I just did this for the more, but I listened to this entire book as a LibriVox. So it's actually a lot of different people reading the different sections. So I just got through the whole book and sort of just let it go by. It's the equivalent of skimming. That's how I was able to choose what selections we would do. And then it was a fairly simple matter to go. Actually, it was just today then that I read through the actual sections and took notes on them. And I felt that it was fine. Usually I do a lot of most of the reading day of or the few days before, but this one I've, I've been reading steadily for a few weeks slowly. What did you do when you were in seminar, Wes? Were you one of those people that felt you had, oh. to, had to read all the reading the day of seminar or to have it in your brain? Or, or did you no. read it three weeks ahead of time and then review no. it and review your notes the day before? No, I was a terrible student. I often missed readings. And if I did get a reading done, it was at the last minute. Usually I didn't get the whole reading done. But you went to seminar even if you hadn't done it? It's better to skip, you know, because if you haven't done it, it's such a painful experience to be in seminar when you haven't done the reading. I did sit through seminars where, and then, I, you know, I had to be silent. It sucks. <laughs> it's your penance. <laughs> It's your just punishment. Yeah. I mean, I realized at some point that I thought I really enjoyed seminars because I learned so much and I enjoyed hearing what other people had to say. And then 
my experiences of not doing the reading and not being able to talk, I realized what I enjoyed about the seminar was listening to my, listening to myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> and yet now you hate listening to yourself. Yes. Doing a podcast will teach you to hate listening to yourself. Yeah, definitely. Since we're off topic already, let's give the ground rules. For the new people. Although, new people, if you really want to hear what this is about, we have an episode zero where we kind of explain why we're uh, joking around here and not jumping into the text right away. And we also did one, what, episode five on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. So while that is not essential for what we'll talk about today, they're complementary, right? This text was the sequel to that one. Or really, that text was the prequel to this one. They're conceptually related. Well, I thought they were actually written like he refers to it as the previous treatise. Like they're actually... Oh, you have to be careful about that, though, because that phrase, the previous works, it's not altogether clear what that refers to. Ah. Well, the ground rules for our discussion include, number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't name drop. Just make your point. Don't say, you'd understand me if only you'd read Nietzsche's unpublished masterwork, Syphilitic All Too Syphilitic. <laughs> Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would constitute a humdinger or a laugh riot. And that would be an actual riot. An actual virtual riot via podcast. And on my notes here, I actually spelled that L-A-F-F, because that's how it is spelled in laugh riot. Hmm. Fascinating. It's translated from the Greek. <laughs> it has a hyphen in it. <laughs> As an overview of this thing, he invented political science, correct? With this text. I thought I heard that somewhere. Well, he sort of, when he talks about that man is fundamentally a political animal and the idea of analyzing the workings of a city and the activity of running a city and the study of how people gather together as individuals to form a city. Yeah, it's politics, I guess. But unlike some of his other sciences, this was explicitly normative. He's not just saying these are the types of governments. He's trying to get at what is the best kind of government by analyzing the types. Right. That's a lot of what this is. The taxonomy is here are the different types of government. Here's the problems that you can have with them. Here's how each of them can become corrupted. Here's how to prevent revolutions in any of them. He does spend some time talking about his kind of ideal government. The last chapter that we didn't read, book eight, is all about in the best kind of state, how people will be educated. So he does have some definite things to say about ideals, but he's also very practical. This text is largely a reaction to Plato's Republic, which we also have an episode on. And his criticisms of Plato are a lot, it's not very practical. How you really are going to just reach out and redistribute all the property? You're really just going to reach out and take these guardians from their parents and put them in public? Isn't that strange? Wouldn't you cause a revolution immediately? Like, so even what he considers the best kind of government, which is government by the best, <laughs> he realizes that different peoples are in different circumstances. In fact, different peoples in different regions may have different natures. So there's really not one best government for every type of person, every type of region. But he can come up with some guidelines. And by knowing this taxonomy and the pitfalls of the various types, you can start with the state that you've got and try to make it better. Yeah, although there is this ideal state that he describes in the last two books, there is one ideal state for good human beings or for human beings who are perfected. So it's impractical yes. in a way, but it's a sort of ideal limit. Yeah, it's a little bit like the idea of the flourishing human being, which for Aristotle is going to require particular circumstances, physical circumstances and mental and a certain kind of fortune as well as ability. It isn't just going to happen. And you can't even necessarily aspire to it 
without having the groundwork available to you. You mean the individual happiness or the perfect state? Both, because he thinks that the happiness of the individual and the happiness of the state are coincidental. They're the same sorts of things. The purpose of the human being is to be happy, and the purpose of the state is to create the conditions under which human beings can be happiness, mm -hmm. right? Book 7, Chapter 2, the happiness in the city is equal to the happiness of the individual. Whether happiness must be asserted to be the same both for a single individual human being and for a city and not the same, however, remains to be spoken of. But this too is evident. All would agree that it is the same. For those who ascribe living well to the wealth in the case of a single person also call the city as a whole blessed if it is wealthy. Those who honor the tyrannical way of life above all would also assert that the city is happiest, which rules the greatest number of persons, so forth. And if anyone accepts that the individual is happy on account of virtue... You also assert that the more excellent city is the one that is happier. Yeah. When we, again, when we say happiness and we're translating eudaimonia or flourishing, we're translating yeah, eudaimonia. Think of well-functioning. Ultimately, what we think of as happiness, the subjective state, will accompany that, all things being equal. But eudaimonia is actually something broader. The good functioning of an, of an individual, which can happen over a long period of time in a way that you wouldn't think of a subjective state as... If someone said they were happy, if for the last 10 years I've been happy, you wouldn't think that for the last 10 years they've had nothing but highs... Their happiness is not simply that subjective state, but you could think, yes, they've been functioning well, they've been flourishing, they've been good and achieving good things. That's good to keep in mind for Aristotle in general, that he's constantly focused on the notion of what the activity of the entity or the thing or the person or the city is. Yeah, he's going to say in the first two chapters of book one, he's going to argue for the city being natural. And when we think of nature in Aristotle, so for instance, the acorn naturally grows into the oak tree, as opposed to a table which is made by artifice. That would be the opposition. And the fact that a given acorn might not grow into an oak tree does not mean that acorns don't naturally grow into oak trees. Right. It has the potential and there's this innate tendency. The innate tendency can be thwarted, but there's an innate yes. Yes. ruling principle which sort of pushes it towards perfection, you know, uses this word perfection, which is related to telos or the end. The perfection is just reaching the end, which is the good of the organism in this case. So the good of the acorn is its development into its end of being a fully developed oak tree. So the idea here is that when he's arguing for a state being natural as opposed to artificial, that's a significant claim because later on he'll talk about the role of the statesman in crafting or creating the city. So it mm -hmm. might seem that the city is in fact the product of human artifice. So it is an interesting and not uncontroversial claim to say the city is actually something natural. Two formulations of that. One is this man is a rational animal. So I've got a quote here. This is from book three, chapter six. Man is an animal naturally formed for society. And therefore, when he does not want any foreign assistance, he will of his own accord desire to live with others. So there's just a motivational thing. But then he also says from uh, book one, chapter two, every city must be allowed to be the work of nature if we admit that the original society between male and female is. For to this, as their end, all subordinate societies tend, and the end of everything is the nature of it. So that's part of yeah. a little longer section where he's talking about, and it sounds very much like what I remember from Rousseau here, one of the theories of society that he puts forward is it's just a form of the family. And so just like other people have argued, Aristotle says that 
just like the father is the natural leader of the family, so their <laughs> monarchy is the natural form. And he doesn't agree with that, but he does think that it grows directly out of the fact that we've got the sex drive, and that leads to the family structure, and then the family is next. As a genetic account, that does explain, so you might say, the efficient cause of society is the family, or the growth of the family beyond the a core to an extended family. Yeah, I think the efficient cause will ultimately end up being the statesman for the state itself. But here, he's making an argument for the naturalness of the state by looking at this natural development. You know, again, it's kind of analogous to the development of an organism. And he wants to show that there's a development out of these natural things. And so the first natural thing is this codependency between husband and wife or master and slave. And we might ask ourselves, well, what makes that inherently natural? Well, I think it's the necessity. In other words, because husband and wife depend upon each other for their existence, they can't exist without each other. And that necessity makes the union itself a natural thing. They would perish without it. Therefore, it's natural. Then you get the building of households out of this mutual need, the building of families. Quick clarification question on that. Would they perish without each other or would the human race perish? Sorry, you're right. It's two different things. In the husband and wife case, he, he emphasizes reproduction, right? So you're right. It would be the species that would perish. And then in the master-slave, it's actually the individuals who depend on each other. I think he sees the husband-wife dynamic as similar to the master-slave, but with also the added consequence to the human race. Well, we brought it up. Let's deal with the slavery thing, since it's right here in the first couple chapters. That that's Because uh... I've tweeted about it like five times already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you? Yeah, I just find it amusing. I'm sorry. Right. Well, that's the big hole, the obvious hole in the theory or the thing that you have to deal with to decide whether you're just going to throw them away or not. We already talked about this in terms of the ethics, that ethics is not for everybody. <laughs> the perfection, virtue is just some people are just not suited to pursue virtue at all. Well, this thing about slavery is the extreme end of that same doctrine, that there are some people that are just naturally slaves. We didn't read the part where he gives an extended argument. He considers the question of whether people are natural slaves, and it has to do with the possibility of someone being naturally servile. And it's complicated for him. And I think it's, depending on how you read it, you can come up with a conclusion whether he thinks that, oh, that such a person exists, but is really, really rare, or that it's conceivable in concept, but not actually. We can at least say that he does acknowledge he's not just affirming the status quo here. Just because you conquer somebody in war, for instance, and take them as slaves doesn't make them natural slaves. Anybody that is a slave right now might not naturally be a slave, but in any case, he's leaving that open as part of his account of human nature, and I guess we could just acknowledge that and move on unless you have other specific things to say. Yeah, no, no, I think we acknowledge it and move on. I think the important point is that later on when he's talking about citizenship and he talks about what makes a citizen in, in different kinds of states. It's important to understand that, and he says explicitly in numerous cases, people who do manual labor can't be fully functioning citizens because they don't have time to read philosophy and study politics and engage in political discourse. That there's this substrata, if you will, of society that's required to support the people who can be citizens and who can participate and so it's not so much about what his particular view of human nature and natural slavery is so much as Aristotle's view, as expressed in the politics, requires slavery. 
the way he lays it out, it requires that there is slavery in the society. It requires that there are women who stay at home and do womanly work. So the hard part is trying to extricate the generalizable views from the fact that all of these things are required in his structure. And there's the interesting background question, which we have to ask ourselves today, of whether we can have the kind of society that we have and live the kinds of, you know, for people who are middle class or upper middle class in the United States to live that kind of lifestyle without depending on what is essentially slave labor elsewhere, right? So most of us can avoid or don't buying clothes which have been made by people earning a very small wage and living in very poor conditions. The society does require artisans, according to Aristotle. He doesn't consistently say that those have to be slaves. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about these outgroups. He does object to the fact that Plato in the Republic really seems to entirely neglect them and just talks about the guardians and their education. And But what about all these other people? Like, If you entirely exclude the mass of the populace from any power in the government, you're going to get a lot of enemies. You're going to get a lot of unrest. So Aristotle is concerned about them insofar as at least they could be troublesome. It's not clear to me the different gradations of people who are not or should not be full citizens. And he definitely distinguishes those. A lot of the concern in here is there are a lot of different societies that have different requirements for citizenship. So maybe only 10% of the people are actually citizens. That doesn't mean the rest are slaves. Right. In fact, Aristotle wrote this at a time when he was a resident alien in Athens. <laughs> yeah. He was not funny. a citizen of Athens. I'm brought back to the beginning where we're talking about the analytical taxonomic turn of Aristotle is that you have to be very careful about when he goes through and entertains one side of a discussion and then he goes and takes another side of the discussion. And it can often be very difficult to figure out what exactly he might advocate himself as opposed mm -hmm. to take apart. So, for instance, he'll talk about oligarchies and tyrannies and um, democracies, and he will classify the kinds of justice in those cases. And you have to be careful not to understand that as him saying, well, justice is whatever he says it is in the case of the oligarchy. He is articulating the way justice is being decided in those circumstances. And it's a slightly different case about what he would consider to be the best of all regimes and the mm -hmm. circumstances in which you could have the best of all regimes, which is, again, not all circumstances. Right. Overall, an oligarchy is a one of the perverted regimes, not for the sake of the citizens of that regime. So it's not one of the best forms of government. But once you take that form and you analyze it, you can establish what the good for that form is, right? You can analyze its end. You can analyze its appropriate structure and so on and so forth, which is what he does. But maybe can we return to the, the argument in chapter two? Because that's where we touched on slavery, which really the point of his brief mention in there of slavery is that it's an example of one of these mutually dependent unions, which are therefore natural. And then we get the village and then we get the polis or the state. And that's built up out of these natural associations. And that's also not just built up out of those natural associations, but it's their end. So the state is actually the end or the thing towards which these other associations tend. And that's why the state is also natural, because the end of the thing is its nature. Right. Just to clarify for folks, so it's like their target, not their yeah. end, like that's where they cease, but it's what they're aiming at. Yeah. Right. To be a little more particular, in book one, chapter two, in moving from the household and the villages, he says, 
in part eight. It says, the partnership arising from the union of several villages that is complete as the city. It reaches a level of self-sufficiency, so to speak. And while coming into being for the sake of living, it exists for the sake of living well. Every city, therefore, exists by nature, if such also are the first partnerships. The city is their end and nature is an end. What each thing is, for example, a human being, a horse or a household, when it's coming into being is complete is we assert the nature of that thing. Again, that for the sake of which a thing exists or the end is what is best and self-sufficiency is an end and what is best. So in the case of the city, this self-sufficiency and its end is living well for the sake of the constituents of the city. Yeah, so there he's saying, if you objected and you said, well, how? why is the polis or the state the end or the target of all these more basic natural human associations? And you would say, well, it's the one that allows for the self-sufficiency. In fact, you know, later we'll get more of that. We can't be self-sufficient without the state. So that's a reason for saying that it's the good of the, and therefore the, the end. And the reason that we have cities in a way that other animals don't is because of speech. And because of speech, we are able to have discussions of the just and the unjust. That's another argument for the idea that humans are political by nature. It's the next paragraph. Yeah. The first argument that human beings are political by nature, or at least it's the implication, it's unclear, is that because the polis is a natural thing, humans are political by nature. And then we also get this argue that it's not just that they have that speech, but that speech is inherently normative. The speech allows us to communicate about concepts like justice. Yeah. It reveals the advantageous and the harmful. And because there's nothing in vain in nature, there has to be a reason for that. And that's our political nature is the reason for us having speech. And we can even pedal it back from something as inflammatory as justice and injustice, but just advantage and harm. Speech serves to reveal the advantageous and the harmful, and hence also the just and the unjust. Okay. So the just and the unjust are subsets of the advantageous and the harmful. Everything just should be advantageous, but not everything advantageous is necessarily just. Right. Okay. Though so he probably would have read a whole chapter on whether that's true or not. The other thing we get in this chapter is this idea that the city-state is prior to individuals. What do you mean, prior? I think it's related to this argument about self-sufficiency. So the proof that the state is prior to the individual is that the individual, when isolated, is not self-sufficing. And therefore, he is like a part in relation to the whole. But he who is unable to live in a society, or who has no need because he is sufficient for himself, must be either a beast or a god. He is no part of a state. And then we get this idea of the social instinct is implanted in all men by nature. You're saying the God thing is mentioned in chapter two as well? Yeah, book one, chapter two is where he mentions okay. the beast or God thing. Yeah. In my translation, it's the second to last paragraph of chapter two, book one. Well, I noticed that that particular bit about the God is repeated in book three, chapter 13. At that point, he's kind of giving advice on statecraft, and he's saying to have a stable society, you need a community of equals. And so if you have somebody who is too virtuous, who is too awesome, who is a god among men, oh, right. then you need to exile them. That's at least one of the ways you can deal with them. That's one of the ways that historical Greek societies had dealt with them. Yes. And I think that that was the part where he actually introduced this famous quote. Maybe it's from elsewhere as well, but the uh, striking off those ears of corn, which were higher than the rest, reducing the whole crop to a level. Yeah, and his, his argument there is that such great men, there can be no laws for such men, right? They are themselves the law. Yeah, as you can see, 
Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 I, got, I was reminded of Nietzsche. <laughs> and also with the master and slave stuff in the first place, I didn't realize that Hegel was reacting so directly mm. to that section here. Yeah, exactly. The mutual dependence. Yeah, This being a primary feature sort of where society starts in the first place. Right. We're all satisfied that the state is natural and human <laughs> beings are by nature political. I think it makes sense the way he talks about partnerships and says, I'm reminded, of course, when we read this, where he says, oh, first there's a union of the man and the woman, and then you have the family, which has a certain sort of structure to it. Then those multiple families come together and that forms a village. And he makes a point of saying that his point that Dylan made about the city is required not just to live, but to live well, is that as these pairings, these partnerships expand and they tend to cluster so the partnership that is the husband and wife becomes the partnership of the family. The partnership of multiple families becomes the village, the partnership of multiple villages, et cetera, et cetera. It increases the opportunities for each of the individual members of these groups to flourish. So yep. if it's just you trying to survive on your own, and he makes the point that, you know, you really couldn't, it's impossible to be self-sufficient. But when you're one family trying to survive... It's a lot different if there are five families grouped together because then you can start partitioning tasks and there are additional skills and, and various sorts of things that come into play. So his idea of the city as this kind of organic outgrowth of the partnering of individuals for the purpose of not just surviving, yep. but getting to the point where you can do things like have art and philosophy and politics of a meaningful sort and all that. That's a compelling story, but it also echoes, or I guess the other way around, these social contract theories that we read for the last couple of years, talking about how people come into partnerships with each other and for the purposes of creating contracts. This, to me, is a much more appealing view than the social contract theory stuff, as if you're going to talk about some sort of hypothetical, organic notion of how individuals come together to form communities. I think that's a great point because these human associations start out as a matter of need at the level of family, for instance. And then with villages, he says something like the village can be for more than mere necessity and survival, but he doesn't really specify how. But then at the level of the city, it's clear that it's not just for the sake of life and exists for the sake of the good life. So we go from mere life to the good life. And at this point, I think self-sufficiency doesn't just mean meeting our basic means. It means self-sufficiency in the sense of the good life in general. That's exactly right. And it's in, I think, significant contradistinction to someone like Hobbes. I think I might have been putting it wrong. I think I was suggesting that human beings could be self-sufficient through the state. But actually, he's saying the state is the only self-sufficient thing, right? Yes. It's not like we achieve self-sufficiency through the state, which sounds kind of contradictory anyway. Or Hegelian, that we achieve actual selfhood. And I think you could read that into Aristotle, that Hegel's notion that we talked about, that it's only in the state that you achieve something like selfhood. It's mm -hmm. That's not going to be Aristotle's word for it, but that you achieve your own eudaimonia, right. which is essentially the same thing. It's our ultimate end, our fulfillment. Yeah. yeah, I think Aristotle would completely agree with that. I think you'd even read the part, what seems like new in, in Hegel's version is that it's this reflectivity, it's this having this picture of yourself. But I think from what you said, likewise, you don't get reflection, you don't get philosophy 
until you have a well-functioning state. Otherwise, everybody's scraping around for subsistence and don't have time for that deep self-knowledge. So, yeah, you could say it's self-knowledge, certainly in the Socratic sense. You just aren't going to get until you've got this. And again, I would think that would include for the ancient Greek having slaves, having people that are taking care of all the stuff that needs taken care of so you can sit around (laughs) and argue about philosophy. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.